This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Good evening, everyone. Uh, great to see you here. My name is Katrina Sedgwick and I'm the director of ACME. Um, we're absolutely thrilled uh, this week to have opened our new winter exhibition Scorsese that's come straight to us um, from Paris uh, where it played at the Cinémathèque Française. It was curated uh, by the Deutsche Kinémathèque and it is a really wonderful exhibition and I'm sure many of you have already popped in and enjoyed uh, its, uh, its wonders. Um, Scorsese is of course one of the most important filmmakers um, of our time and we've been really thrilled uh, from the outset Obviously, we needed to have a really rich uh, cinema program uh, to run with it. And we're delighted to have partnered with uh, Sydney Film Festival and the National Film and Sound Archive to work with the wonderful uh, David Stratton, who has selected his 10 favourite Scorsese films uh, into a program called Essential Scorsese. And we're really honoured that tonight uh, David has made the trip down. Luckily, he arrived after spending quite some time on the tarmac in Sydney uh, to be here to give us uh, his insights and, and uh, um, imaginings around Scorsese and the 10 films that he selected. So please make uh, David Stratton welcome. Thank you, Katrina. Um, good evening, everybody. It's, uh, it's really difficult to choose 10 films. Uh, with someone like Scorsese, you want to choose everything. And of course, there are some major omissions, um, which I apologize for. But my brief was to pick only 10, and, and that's what I've tried to do. But tonight, I want to talk about, um, I'll talk about the films, but I also want to talk a, a bit about Martin Scorsese. Uh, and his place in cinema. The end of the 1960s represented a, a watershed for American cinema. The great directors of Hollywood's golden age, Hitchcock, Ford, Hawks, Capra, and all those, um, had, with a couple of exceptions, retired or passed away. And the studios that afforded stability and continuity for those directors were now in the hands of conglomerates, so there was no longer any continuity or stability. Box office receipts had been dwindling since the end of World War II, the, the highest box office uh, in, in the history of American cinema, and world cinema really, was in 1946. Um, so clearly something had to change. And one of the changes that occurred was the introduction of a new generation of directors who became the first generation to have been raised on the cinema itself, who had watched the great films of the past and who'd learned from them, who were, to a large extent, film buffs. And this new wave of directors included people like Peter Bogdanovich, uh, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Brian De Palma, Bob Rafelson, Jonathan Demme, and above all, I think, Martin Scorsese. And of them, Scorsese was the most passionate. If you've ever seen him uh, being interviewed uh, or talking about cinema, you, you, you could feel that passion. His enthusiasm for the cinema's past went way beyond fandom or buffdom. He was just totally devoted to the rediscovery and the restoration of the great and even the not-so-great films of the past from any source. They didn't have to be American or Italian. They could be from anywhere. If, if, if they were of interest, he wanted to restore them and make them available for people to see. His enthusiasm um, was really infectious, and his knowledge of international cinema is vast. Um, his memory for detail is extraordinary. There's so much information stored inside him that it's as though he's bursting at the seams. He talks in that rapid-fire style as though he doesn't have enough time to describe everything he knows. He's almost like a character from a 1930s movie. You can imagine Cary Grant or, or, or someone like that talking at the same pace that he does. 
And of course, his films are passionate too. His best films are explosive in their impact, crammed uh, with incident and information and detail. Take the, the opening twin narratives of Casino, for example, uh, one of the films in, in this uh, selection. Um, the film opens with twin stories, uh, which a wonderful example of Scorsese's urge to convey as much information as possible in the shortest amount of time. Like the character played by Harvey Keitel in Mean Streets, Scorsese is torn between the sacred and the profane. On the one hand, his Catholic upbringing leads him to tackle religious subjects, like The Last Temptation of Christ and Kundun, while the Saturday matinee kid in him revels in the trashy gore of his gangster films. Martin Scorsese was born in 1942 in Flushing, New York. When he was eight years old, his parents moved uh, into Manhattan to the area known as Little Italy. As a boy, he suffered from asthma, so he was unable to take part in strenuous activities. But his father took him to the cinema twice a, a week, and the passion was ignited. He toyed with the idea of becoming a priest, but the seductive power of movies and, I think, to a certain extent, rock and roll, prevailed. He studied at New York University, where he made short films, What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Place Like This, in 1963, and It's Not Just You, Murray, in 1965. Some of you will have seen, I'm sure, his, his amazing short film made in 1967, The Big Shave. Um, yeah, I think it's screening downstairs in, in the exhibition. Uh, and it was designed as an allegory for the Vietnam War, and uh, it, it still makes an enormous impact on anybody who sees it. And about this time, he started making a wholly independent 35mm black-and-white feature, which was originally titled Bring on the Dancing Girls, uh, but which eventually became called Who's That Knocking at My Door? It starred his friend Harvey Keitel, uh, who plays a mixed-up young man whose Catholic upbringing has invested in him an appalling double standard. He and his friends spend their time chasing broads, but when he meets a nice girl, he can't or won't make love to her. And when she reveals that she's not a virgin because she's been raped, he turns against her. It's a very powerful debut feature. The setting is New York's Little Italy, and it's enclosed world, and it is all clearly autobiographical. On their first date, the couple discuss John Ford's The Searchers, as you do on your first date. <laughs> the film found limited distribution only after the success of Taxi Driver. After a stint in Europe where he helped write the screenplay for a Dutch film, don't quite know how that worked, but somehow it did, he returned to America to work on the editing of the music documentary Woodstock, which Michael Wadley had made, and was then spotted by Roger Corman. Roger Corman was a, a, a prolific director of C-level movies in the 50s and graduated perhaps to A-level movies in the, in the 60s. But he also uh, was a man who produced the films, the early films of a lot of different talents, including people like Jonathan Demme. Um, and he spotted uh, Scorsese and hired him to direct a Depression-era melodrama called Boxcar Bertha. That was in 1972. Um, the idea, I think, that Corman had was that these young directors were hungry. They wanted, they needed to make films. Um, so, and they, they, had, they were full of ideas. They were fresh. They were new. Uh, so that would give something to these admittedly pulpy kind of uh, idea projects. And they wouldn't need to be paid too much, and they'd be willing to work on a low budget. And it was a pretty canny um, idea. And a lot of interesting people got started, thanks to Roger Corman. The film starred Barbara Hershey, uh, uh, and it had lots of sex and nudity. Again, you'll see some interesting references to it downstairs in the exhibition. This was followed by Mean Streets, which was made independently on a budget of $550,000, and it became Scorsese's breakthrough feature. Um, again, there are strong autobiographical elements in Mean Streets. 
Uh, it's set in Manhattan's Little Italy again. Um, it stars Harvey Keitel as Charlie, an Italian-American conflicted between his loyalty to his family, his friends, and the church. The opening sequence um, shows still photographs of Charlie in different situations as the credits are printed over those photographs. Um, still photographs and home movies, in fact. Um, and the name Mar directed by Martin Scorsese appears over the image of Charlie shaking hands with his parish priest, which I think is probably significant given that Scorsese himself had seriously considered entering the priesthood before becoming a filmmaker. So the film combines an, an electric and eclectic um, rock soundtrack, naturalistic dialogue, performances influenced by the 1955 Oscar winner Marty, and in the case of Robert De Niro, uh, surely influenced by Marlon Brando. The film seamlessly blends uh, personal experience with cinematic references, both to the Hollywood of the past um, and much more recent European cinema, the scene in which Charlie and his girlfriend Teresa meet in a hotel room uh, is very reminiscent of Jean-Luc Godard's Abu de Souffle or, or Breathless. But perhaps the most impressive element in an astonishingly vivid and compelling film is the performance of Robert De Niro as Johnny Boy, Charlie's friend and Teresa's brother a dangerously unstable wild card whose recklessness in dealing with the minor mafia figures that also inhabit this world leads to the film's climax. The film gives the impression of being improvised. It has loose, fluid camera work. Um, Scorsese himself appears in a telling cameo at the very end. But he said at the time he made it that he was making a, an homage to Warner Brothers gangster films of the early 30s. And there's a lot of that in it, too. He also slips in a clip from Fritz Lang's The Big Heat near the end of the film. And that was made in the 1950s. But as Scorsese said, it was made in the 50s, but it was in the tradition of Warner Brothers gangster films. Scorsese said of Mean Streets, it featured the music I grew up with. When we heard those songs, life would stop for a couple of minutes. And I wanted the film to stop, too, when these songs were played. And it does, actually. It, it, it's a film that is composed of long, rather aimless scenes, but put together, they're quite extraordinary. It looks at the American dream. Everybody thinks they can get rich quick, and if they can't do it legally, they'll do it illegally. The film's an attempt, Scorsese said, to put myself and my friends on screen, to show how we lived, what life was like in Little Italy. It was an anthropological or a sociological tract. Charlie tries to help other people, but in the process not only ruins them, but he ruins himself. The film was originally titled Season of the Witch, and Scorsese's then partner, romantic partner, uh, helped him form the narrative, uh, eliminate some of the uh, religious elements, or pare them down anyway, and increase the scenes of the, the guys just hanging out and quarreling and arguing and so on. The final title, Mean Streets, is a quote from Raymond Chandler, uh, a Raymond Chandler line that goes, down these mean streets a man must go. Interestingly, for a film that was, is set and very much a New York film, the film was almost entirely made in Los Angeles, um, shot with a, a Roger Corman crew, um, with just a few days location filming in New York. Scorsese met Robert De Niro thanks to Brian De Palma. Uh, Brian De Palma had directed De Niro in three films, The Wedding Party, Greetings, and High Mom. And Scorsese said uh, that when De Palma introduced him to, to uh, Robert De Niro, it changed his life. Obviously, you can see why. Scorsese also said that he learned how to work with actors simply from watching movies. He said that Brando in On the Waterfront and James Dean in East of Eden changed my life completely. The friendship between Charlie and Johnny Boy was, he says, inspired by, wait for it, Abbott and Costello and Bob Hope and Bing Crosby in the road movies. 
And if you've seen the film, uh, Robert De Niro and the actor Richard Romanus, um, who plays his sort of nemesis, actually disliked each other very much in real life. So the scene in which Johnny Boy pulls a gun on him was highly charged. Mean Streets had its premiere at the New York Film Festival uh, in 1973, uh, where it had a wonderful reception. The following May, it screened in the director's fortnight at the Cannes Film Festival, and a month later, it screened. I screened it at the Sydney Film Festival, and I'm pretty sure it must have screened at the Melbourne Film Festival too, but I can't recall that particularly. Scorsese's next film was Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Um, the script of the film had been inquired by Ellen Burstyn uh, after it had been originally planned for Diana Ross. And Francis Ford Coppola, who had been very impressed with Mean Streets and incidentally had cast Robert De Niro in Godfather II on the strength of seeing him in Mean Streets, um, he suggested that Alan Burstyn discuss with Martin Scorsese the possibility of directing Alice. So the contrast between Alice and Mean Streets could not be greater. From the asphalt jungle of New York to rural America, from a story about men to a story about a woman or women's friendship, actually, because the friendship of women is very strong in the film. On the surface, it's one of the director's less personal films, but from the very opening sequence when eight-year-old Alice daydreams of happiness over the rainbow, both cinematic and personal references appear. The Wizard of Oz is an obvious reference, but that opening sequence also, I think, uh, speaks to films like Duel in the Sun, uh, Gone with the Wind, and the 1953 version of Invasion from Mars. You, you'll have to see it to work all that out. So in the film, real life in New Mexico doesn't live up to Alice's expectations, and when her volatile husband is accidentally killed, she sets out with her 11-year-old son to her childhood home in Monterey. Uh, at a stopover in Phoenix, the bickering mother and son encounter Harvey Keitel, who plays a charmer with a distinctly violent side. And in Tucson, we meet Jodie Foster, playing a precocious little girl. Foster was 12 years old when the film was made and had been acting in film and television since she was seven. Ellen Burstyn won an Oscar for her performance as Alice. Um, and the film, I think, probably the, the, the best cinematic reference to the film is, is the, the melodramas of Douglas Sirk. I think it's very much in that sort of area, if you know those films. This um, search for love and companionship takes Alice and us to some very unexpected destinations. And it's full of movie references. Over the opening credits, Alice Faye sings Where or When from Hello, Frisco, Hello. At one point, young Tommy watches television and they're showing Coney Island starring Betty Grable and so on and so on. Um, and the very last shot, if you haven't seen the film and if you're going to see it in this season, the very last shot is just beautiful. And again, it's a reference, I think, to The Wizard of Oz, that home is where the heart is or there's no place like home. And incidentally, several women worked on the film. The production designer, the editor, the associate producer were all women. But Scorsese said, we never intended it to be a feminist film. It was a film about self-responsibility and also about how people make the same mistakes again and again. I met Martin Scorsese for the first time uh, in Edinburgh in 1975 when he was presenting Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore there and um, chatting with him after the screening, he told me that he had just finished shooting his new film, uh, a New York drama called Taxi Driver. Uh, he said it had been pretty heavy stuff and he was a bit nervous about how the public were going to take it. Um, so you can imagine that I was anticipating Taxi Driver quite, quite a bit for almost a year before it finally emerged. So Taxi Driver, uh, one of the key figures involved in Taxi Driver was Paul Schrader. And there again, it was Brian De Palma who introduced um, Scorsese to Paul Schrader. Schrader had been raised in a strict, very, very strict Calvinist home in Michigan, but he had written essays on the films of Ozu and Bresson and Dreyer, some very esoteric, very beautiful, calm filmmakers. Taxi Driver derived from Schrader's experiences living rough in New York, 
But also, uh, Schrader says that he was inspired writing the screenplay by Jean-Paul Sartre's first existential novel, La Nausée. And Schrader also studied the diaries of Arthur Bremer, who was the man who tried to assassinate Governor George Wallace. So the film combines the vision of two very different artists whose love of cinema unites them, the Catholic Scorsese, the Protestant Paul Schrader. And of course it is one of the iconic films of the 70s. Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle, a lonely, poorly educated Vietnam vet attracted to pornography and violence, is one of the key figures of American cinema. And the passage of his taxi through the grubby, mean, smoky streets of the city, accompanied by a great score, the last score written by the composer Bernard Herrmann, are unforgettable. And so too are those improvised monologues in front of a mirror. You talking to me, you're all wearing, some of you I've seen around wearing T-shirts with this. So it's, 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 it's a line that, of course, has entered into, into our lives completely. Um, like Robert Altman's great film Nashville, which was made the year before, uh, Taxi Driver alludes to the political assassinations of the 60s, while it turns the violence into another direction altogether. And like no film before it, and very few since, it explores the world of teenage prostitution. Jodie Foster was 14 years old when she played the 12-year-old hooker. The New York depicted in Taxi Driver evokes the sordid nightmare of Midnight Cowboy rather than the clashing codes of family, religion, and criminality that Scorsese had explored in Mean Streets. The film won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes, that's the first prize, at the Cannes Film Festival, and that confirmed the direct director's status as an American master. He makes a cameo appearance in many of his films. Uh, again, you'll see him in Taxi Driver as one of the Taxi Driver's scarier passengers. Um, he said that much of Taxi Driver arose from my feeling that movies are really a kind of dream state. The shock of walking out of the cinema into broad daylight can be terrifying. The film captured that sense of being almost awake. The first shot I thought of and the last that I filmed has Travis on the phone to Betsy and the camera tracks down a long hallway. I like it because it captures the loneliness of the whole thing. The idea was to make a cross between gothic horror and the New York Daily News. The film was shot during a very hot summer. It was very uncomfortable to film. There were a lot of improvisations. And uh, one of the films that inspired Scorsese while he was preparing it was Alfred Hitchcock's The Wrong Man. He was interested in, in, in the way Hitchcock shot some of his scenes. Um, Travis, of course, has nothing but the best intentions. He believes he's doing right. And in that sense, he's very spiritual. Um, but then, as Scorsese has noted, Charles Manson was spiritual too. So it's the power of the spirit on the wrong road. The key to the picture is the idea of being brave enough to admit having these feelings and then act them out. Acting out was not the way to go, and, thus, and this created more ironic twists. It was crucial, this is Scorsese talking, it was crucial to Travis that he had experienced life and death while he was in Vietnam. I think any guy coming back from a war would be paranoid. Scorsese has also noted that he was amazed at the audience reaction to the film. At the premiere, he said, people were urging Travis on at the end. Yes, kill him, kill him. He, in, he intended for them to say that and, yes, and, then, and then realize what they were saying and say, my God, no, no, don't, like a sort of therapy session. Um, Paul Schrader saw the ending as a kind of samurai death with honor sequence. But Scorsese said that he was always thinking of Travis along the lines of John Wayne's character in The Searchers. Someone searching and searching, but at the end, really finding nothing. Despite its title and setting, New York, New York was filmed entirely in Hollywood. Scorsese noted at the time that it goes back to the old films I used to see as a kid, 
which reflected part of New York, but that was a fantasy New York. So in this picture, I tried to fuse the movies I grew up with as a kid and the reality I experienced myself. The big band music of the 1940s was the music I grew up with, and I wanted to make it in the style of a 1940s movie with all that artifice. The sets would be fake, but I'd approach the characters like a documentary, combining the two techniques. I tried to follow the example of the director Vincent Minnelli with his very long takes, and Vincent Minnelli's daughter Liza Minnelli, of course, stars in the film. So the extended opening sequence in which Robert De Niro's Jimmy Doyle, a saxophonist who plays with the big bands, uh, meets singer Francine Evans, played by Liza Minnelli, that extended opening sequence uh, was enormously long to begin with. I mean, the film itself, the original cut, was four and a half hours long. Um, and the opening sequence alone ran about, where they meet, ran about an hour. Um, so it was a, f a, a film that was, again, improvised a lot. Many scenes were staged in a similar style to those big band epics of the 50s, like the Glenn Miller story and the Benny Goodman story. Um, but Scorsese says it's not a film about jazz. It could have been a film about a director and a writer or an artist and a composer. It's really about two people in love with each other who are both creative. That was the idea. And then to see if such a marriage of two creative people could work. We didn't know the answer when we were making the film because we didn't know if our own marriages at the time were working. So we kept rewriting, improvising, improvising, improvising until 20 weeks of shooting went by and we had something like a movie. So all this time we were trying to marry the improvisation with documentary, with the artifice of fake sets. So it was really an experimental film. Um, and it's a miracle, he says, that the film makes any kind of sense. At times, it was brilliant, but for the sake of bits of brilliance, we lost a lot too. I had a really bad experience making the movie, and I still don't really like it, yet, in a way, I love it. Some people understand the ending, he says. Some just don't get it. I must say, I'm personally very fond of New York, New York, um, but again, as I say, the original cut, four and a half hours long. Um, Scorsese eventually cut it for its initial release to two and a half hours. By the time it opened in Australia, it was cut even further. Um, and the version that opened here originally in 1977, 78, uh, was uh, two and a quarter hours. In between these films, Scorsese always found time to make documentaries. In 1970, he made Street Scenes. In 1974, Italian-American. In 1977, American Boy. All these were personal, small-scale labors of love. But in 1978, he made a feature documentary called The Last Waltz, which is one of the greatest of all music films, a record of the last concert of the band, the band, on Thanksgiving Day, 1976. And the film has contributions from Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Emmylou Harris, Ringo Starr, and many others. And it's a, a really great film, I think. New York, New York was a commercial failure. And Scorsese went through a period of depression. In fact, he was in hospital over the Labor Day weekend in 1978 when Robert De Niro paid him a visit. During the filming of Alice, De Niro had given him a copy of a book by Jake LaMotta called Raging Bull. And now De Niro wanted to make the film. We could do a really good job with this, De Niro said. And Scorsese was fascinated by the self-destructive side of LaMotta, his very basic emotions. In fact, what could be more basic than making a, a living by hitting someone else until one of you falls down? Paul Schrader wrote a screenplay um, which... Scorsese and De Niro together rewrote. Schrader wasn't very happy with the changes, but on the first day's shooting, he sent a telegram, Jake did it his way, I did it my way, you do it your way. Scorsese said that he put everything he knew and everything he felt into Raging Bull, and he thought it might be the last film he ever made. Again, On the Waterfront was a major influence. Robert De Niro was playing Jake LaMotta, 
playing Marlon Brando, playing Terry Malone, the character Brando plays in On the Waterfront. It's about a guy attaining something and losing everything and then redeeming himself. That's Scorsese's one-line description of one of his finest films. Uh, and it is a, a really extraordinary film, I think. Uh, and again, the film has a Christian point of view. Who are we to judge to point out the speck in our brother's eye while we have a beam in our own eye? Jake acted tougher in real life than he does in the film, says Scorsese. And the screenplay originally showed even worse things about him, but they were dropped as the film was made. The major influence on that film, Scorsese says, says was the 1949 crime drama Force of Evil, particularly the relationship between the brothers. One of the best things we did, Scorsese said in Raging Bull, was to drop the sound out at certain moments. The silence, and then suddenly the whack of a punch. And it became like scoring music, and it took a very long time to do. And filming on Raging Bull was delayed, famously, because Robert De Niro insisted on putting on weight and not faking it. The production shut down for four months while the actor ate his way around France and Italy. <laughs> the entire film was edited before the fat scenes were shot. The film took a lot out of Scorsese and De Niro emotionally. Um, it opened the Berlin Film Festival in 1981 and won Oscars for De Niro for Best Actor and for Thelma Schoonmaker for Best Editor. After successfully portraying dangerous obsessives in a handful of Scorsese films, Robert De Niro tackles a slightly different kind of single-minded eccentric, the fan, Rupert Pupkin, in The King of Comedy. TV chat show host Jerry Langford, played in a brilliant piece of casting by Jerry Lewis, is Rupert's idol. And Rupert fantasizes about taking over Langford's show and becoming a television star in his own right. And whereas the previous Scorsese De Niro obsessives have been dangerously violent, Pupkin, although he becomes involved in criminal activity, is played for laughs. His dismal stand-up comedy routine is so bad, it's funny. But the film is almost stolen by Sandra Bernhardt as a female fan who's equally crazy about the bemused Langford. It's a film that explores the world of television and the camera work by Fred Schuller is notably and deliberately less mobile than it is in the earlier films. The images are deliberately more conventional. And stardom is seen to be a lonely place to be. Jerry eats alone in his luxurious apartment seems to have no intimate friends. Scenes in which he's accosted on the street by his fans are quite painful. And indeed, the extensive street photography adds greatly to the realism. In the film, uh, Rupert, the fan's mother, is always yelling at him uh, to tell him to stop what he's doing. We never see the mother, uh, but the voice is that of Catherine Scorsese, uh, Scorsese's own mother. And Scorsese himself, again, appears briefly as the director of the television show. The King of Comedy is quite close to my heart, actually, because um, in 1983, uh, I directed my last Sydney Film Festival after 18 years, and the film I chose to close my final festival was The King of Comedy. I'm going on a bit here, so I'll try and be a bit briefer as we head towards the end. Um, Scorsese followed The King of Comedy with After Hours, which, which uh, is not one of my ten choices, although it should be because it's, it's a lovely film. After Hours is a delightful New York-based comedy made on a very modest scale about a young man's misadventures and strange encounters during the period of one incident-filled night. It's totally beguiling. This was followed by The Color of Money, a sequel to Robert Rosson's great 1961 drama The Hustler, with Paul Newman reprising his role from the original film, and Tom Cruise giving one of his better performances as an up-and-coming competitor. And then came The Last Temptation of Christ, an adaptation of the book by the Greek writer Nikos Kazantzakis, uh, which was controversial because of the self-doubts attributed to Christ. Willem Dafoe played Christ, and Scorsese was pilloried for his alternate approach to the material. Fundamentalist Christians called for the film to be banned, there was a huge fuss over it. Here in Australia, it sort of scraped through the censors, 
but it was banned in Queensland. <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you an interesting little aside, uh, because I'd been involved very much in the fight against censorship in the, in the 60s, and the night that The Last Temptation of Christ opened in Sydney, uh, I found myself walking by the cinema, and there was a large crowd of Christians protesting at the opening of the film, and I was sort of curious to see what sort of people would be so uh, incensed by this film. And, and I was standing there, and this nice old lady, really sweet old lady, came up to me, and she said, are you David Stratton? And I said, yes. And she said, I want you to know you changed my life. And I said, really? And she said, yes. She said, 20 years ago I heard you talking about censorship, and the next day I went out and joined the Festival of Light. In case you don't know, the Festival of Light was a sort of right-wing pro-censorship organization. So I'm not sure that it still exists. Perhaps it does. Um, anyway, so um, The Last Temptation of Christ banned in Queensland. Um, and then in 1989, Scorsese directed one episode, Life Lessons, from the three-part New York stories. The other episodes directed by Woody Allen and Francis Ford Coppola. Then came Goodfellas. Now, um, Scorsese's line here is interesting. What people don't understand is that a gangster's job is not to go around killing people. A gangster's job is to make money. And that was, that was his, his thing about the film. Being a gangster was better than being... Uh, the, sorry, being a gangster was better than being president of the United States, says um, Henry Hill brilliantly played by Ray Liotta in the film. So this is, a, 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 again, a really fine, it's been called the Citizen Kane of gangster movies. Um, uh, jet black humor, colorful characters, uh, a, a really it's a long film but incredibly propulsive uh, pacing, uh, typical Scorseseian energy. Um, it's, it's a terrific film. And that was followed by Scorsese's remake of the 1961 thriller, cult thriller, Cape Fear, in which Robert Mitchum had played a psychotic ex-con who threatened the family of upright Gregory Peck. In Scorsese's remake, Nick Nolte has the Gregory Peck role and Robert De Niro the Mitchum role, um, and both Peck and Mitchum appear in cameo roles. People ask me, what is, what is your, my, favorite Scorsese film? And it's really hard because, I mean, they're, they're all, almost all, so great. But I usually answer, my favorite is The Age of Innocence. Um, I think The Age of Innocence is a great film. And uh, it's a, a, a film which shows Scorsese in, in a somewhat different light, um, very much under the influence of the great Italian director, Lucchini Visconti, and especially The Leopard. Um, it's based on a novel by Edith Wharton, who became the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Literature when she wrote The Age of Innocence in 1920. And uh, you might think that this story of forbidden love set in the New York of the 1870s would have been better suited to uh, Merchant Ivory or maybe Jane Campion in her Portrait of a Lady mode uh, than to the director of Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. But he, Scorsese's love of classical cinema um, should not be underestimated. And The Age of Innocence um, is really one of the finest films of its kind. On one level, it's the story of Newland Archer, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, the prominent, well-connected lawyer, his marriage to Mae Welland, Winona Ryder, who comes from a similarly aristocratic background, but his love for the Countess Olenska, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, whose reputation has hardly survived a scandalous European marriage. And Scorsese takes a leaf out of the book of Orson Welles and the Magnificent Ambersons with his witty and intimate depiction of the way upper-class New Yorkers actually lived in the Age of Innocence. The film is sumptuously photographed by Michael Bauhaus, scored by Elmer Bernstein, and it's one of the finest dissections of 19th century manners and mores that have ever been filmed. Scorsese followed that in 1995 with his personal journey through American movies, um, which is a, a very fine documentary about uh, his love for Hollywood cinema. And then in 19, the same year, 1995, made Casino, which now 
seems to be the conclusion to an unofficial trilogy that began with mean streets, street criminals, continued with goodfellas, mid-level gangsters, and now major crime syndicates uh, working against the glittering but tawdry backdrop of the artificial desert city of Las Vegas, a city that's perhaps comparable in its glitter and its tawdriness to Hollywood itself. Um, Most of the film unfolds in the 70s when the mob controlled casinos from its headquarters in Kansas City. And it's, again, a very powerful film and perhaps the finest performance ever by Sharon Stone, which um, perhaps sounds strange, but nevertheless, that's the way it is. And um, uh, again, Thelma Schoenmacher's editing is is devastatingly precise. Uh, 1997, Kundun, uh, Scorsese's secondly overtly religious film, explored the life of the 14th Dalai Lama from his childhood up to the time of his confrontation with the Chinese authorities and his exile. And this was followed by Bringing Out the Dead, scripted by Paul Schrader again, powerful drama about the experiences of a paramedic played by Nicolas Cage working on the violent streets of New York. It wasn't very popular at the time, um, but I think it's one of uh, Scorsese's more interesting uh, later films. My Voyage to Italy in, in 2001 was Scorsese's tribute to the Italian cinema that influenced him so much when he was young. Gangs of New York, a big budget period gangster film made on an epic scale, the film, the director's first collaboration with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, magnificently photographed again, depiction of gang warfare on the streets of the city in the 1860s, maybe a kind of prequel to his earlier gangster films. In 2003, Scorsese was executive producer on a series of documentaries made under the generic title The Blues. Music has always played a very important role in his films, of course, and he's always been very keen on music. And uh, as we'll see in a a second, he made a number of uh, very fine music documentaries. Well, we've mentioned The Last Waltz already. So um, he directed one of this series himself called Feel Like Going Home, which explores the movement of musicians from Africa to the Mississippi Delta. Then comes The Aviator. So religion, crime, show business, and the cinema itself have always fascinated him. And although The Aviator is essentially a biopic of uh, Howard Hughes, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, the extremely eccentric inventor and and flyer, um, it's just as much a portrait of the glamour of filmmaking during Hollywood's golden era. Hughes is first seen, seen as a child being bathed by his mother. He was indeed one of the most powerful and eccentric figures the industry ever produced. Um, in 1927, when he directed the World War I flying epic Hell's Angels, which has amazing scenes of aerial combat, and then when sound came in, he shot extra scenes with appalling dialogue, appallingly directed, um, which were added to these amazing flying scenes. Um, and then later on in his career in the late 1940s, he owned RKO and lusted after contract actresses like Jane Russell and Faith Demurg. So in The Aviator, we have Kate Blanchett in her first Oscar-winning role as a surprisingly convincing Catherine Hepburn and Kate Beckinsale as Ava Gardner. So the film is really alluring and its technical achievements, including its representation of various early stages of the Technicolor process, earned it a handful of Oscars. Uh, a very handsome film indeed. A highlight is the scene in which Hughes crashes his plane uh, in the middle of the Los Angeles suburbs. Um, since The Aviator, Scorsese's continued to make music documentaries. No Direction Home, about Bob Dylan. Shine a Light, about Mick Jagger. Living in a Material World, about George Harrison. And he's also, of course, contributed to television drama with Boardwalk Empire. His features over the past decade have been The Departed, a thriller for which he belatedly won an Oscar for Best Direction. The film also won for Best Picture. Shutter Island, another thriller based on a book by Dennis Lehane. Hugo, a stunningly beautiful tribute to cinema pioneer George Méliès, and incidentally a film that uses the 3D system uh, as as well as it's ever been used, I think. Um, If you've never seen Hugo in 3D, do try, because it gives a whole new meaning to the system. The only other one that comes close to it is Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. Um, And his most recent um, released film, The Wolf of Wall Street. Due for release later this year is Silence, which will be the director's third overtly religious feature. It's based on a novel by Shusako Endo, and it's about two Jesuit priests who travel to Japan in the 17th century. Uh, Scorsese is now 74 years old, 
but he shows no sign of slowing down. Um, hopefully his next project will be his long-awaited uh, ambition to make a biopic of Frank Sinatra. Now this really could be fascinating given the singer-actor's long-rumored links to organized crime. It has everything. It's got crime, it's got the movies, it's got Hollywood, it's got music, big bands, everything. Um, and I think it's, it, there have been um, problems, legal problems, uh, that have prevented it being made before now. But let's hope he makes it, because I really want to see the Frank Sinatra story directed by Martin Scorsese. Um, and uh, hopefully we won't have to wait too long. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. Um, I think David's up for some questions, if uh, people would like to ask them. And we've got a couple of microphones, uh, one on either side. Um, we'll probably only have about 10 minutes. So please dive in uh, quickly. Um, yes, I, it was really interesting, David. He, Scorsese sent us a little message for our opening night on oh. Wednesday night. And um, his curiosity is clearly boundless and he was talking to us very directly and saying, you know, I'm just, I, I love cinema so much and what I love about it is there is so much to learn. I mean, he really is exploring new techniques throughout while having a distinct voice. Yeah, well, I mean, as, as I say, I, 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 I think what he did in Hugo was, was really quite extraordinary. And, and, um, the, if, and if you've seen the film, it's sort of largely set in the dome of this huge railway station in Paris, and 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 the the, the depth that he he creates through the 3D process is is gives you a whole dare I say it new dimension to the drama. Um, so um, yeah, he, he he obviously I mean he, his love of cinema is 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 um, is profound. I don't think he's ever been to Australia, has he? No, no, no. we we. We hoped we'd get him, but um, silence has taken much longer in post than he'd hoped. So they were planning to release it for Cannes. And right. we set our opening date to fall just after Cannes to try and grab him off the back of his French troupe. And then post went crazy, which also meant Thelma Shoemaker couldn't come either because they're locked in an edit suite mm -hmm. together, which is a bit of a bummer. Um, questions? Yep. Uh, up the back. David, hi. Out the back. Yes. Um, you began by... Um alluding to what many regard as the death of the studio system in the late 60s and how these young Turks, for want of a better phrase, came to prominence in the 70s, and Scorsese was one of those, um, with Coppola and De Palma and those others. Spielberg, Lucas, has now sold out to Disney. Why do you think it is that Scorsese is the one who's still seems to be so prominent in making films, it feels as if he's a much younger man than he is, where it feels as if the others have fallen away. Well, I think, I, I don't think Spielberg's fallen away. I think he's he's still um, pretty busy. I haven't seen the BFG as yet, but, but uh, I mean, he's, he's, he had some success with that in Cannes. So, um, but you're right. I mean, people like Francis Ford Coppola, I mean, the last maybe three films that he's made have really struggled to find any kind of distribution at all. I mean, I think in many cases they, they went straight to DVD somewhere. Um, and and uh, George Lucas, as you say, has sold out big time. Um, and um, uh, and of the others, Brian De Palma and, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's true. So why, why Scorsese? Um, Look, I, I, I think it's, again, what I said at the beginning, I think it's his passion. I mean, this guy, there's no stopping him. And uh, he, he he's, 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 he appears to me to have so much to, so many stories to tell, so much to contribute. Um, and when he's not making films, he's, uh, he's supervising the restoration of uh, some other film he loves, or he's giving his name to the release of... Uh, truly esoteric films from Morocco and, and places like that on DVD in the UK and things like that. You know, I mean, he's, he never, never stops. Um, I, I don't know him. I've, I've only met him a couple of times briefly, but I do have a, 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 quite a, a close friend who's a film director in France called Bertrand Tavernier. And Bertrand and Martin, Marty, as they call him, uh, are in touch all the time, and they're all the time exchanging... Uh, copies of films, DVDs, and probably illegal ones, actually, but it doesn't matter. Um, 
and and uh, so you go to visit Bertrand, and and he oh, is the latest package from Marty, and he'll pick it, and there's, there's some Western that was made in 1942, um, and and they they love that, and they they Tarantino I, I guess is a bit like that too, and um, so I I just think he's he's young at heart. Oh, sorry, here. Can, okay. Um, it's a question about Scorsese, but also about the future. In terms of the contemporary directors that you think Scorsese has influenced, and if we were sitting here, and maybe it won't be me, um, in 30 or 40 years' time, like we might have predicted back in the early 70s, who we might be celebrating based on those contemporary directors? Oh, <clears throat> well, that's, that's a pretty hard question. I mean, I, I, uh, okay, just off the top of my head, um, I don't know why, but immediately uh, a, a young director of the future who, who comes to mind is Jennifer Kent, uh, Australian, uh, made a film called The Babadook. Anybody see The Babadook? And if you didn't, you should be ashamed. How many people saw the Babadook? Okay, good. Wasn't it good? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's a really original. It takes a terribly cliched idea, um, and she made it on a nothing budget in Adelaide. Great performance from Essie Davis. Great performance from the kid, and it is one of the scariest, without any explicit horror. It's one of the creepiest films you've ever seen. Now, I think that given the right opportunities, Jennifer Kent could become a really major, major director. Um, I think, I don't know why I'm thinking all Australian at the moment, uh, but the Spearig brothers, who made another really terrific film a couple of years ago called Predestination with Sarah Snook, terrific film, really inventive, imaginative science fiction film, which again, to our shame, did not perform well in Australia, but was more better received overseas. Why is this? I don't know. Uh, they are, they, they've made, I think, three films now, and, and they're incredibly talented. I think they're twin brothers. Um, so so there's, there's talent coming out of Australia. Um, what did I, I saw an American independent film the other day by Jeremy Saulnier, which is, which is called Green Room, which is on somewhere around, I think. It's not a masterpiece, but it does show um, a director of talent. He made a film called Blue Ruin before that, which was, I thought, quite interesting. So uh, there are, I mean, Jeff Nichol is an interesting director who, who just had a film in Cannes with Joel Edgerton. Um, and his film Midnight Special again kind of had a, you know, blink and you'll miss it type of release. Thank you, Roadshow. You do a really good job. And um, um, yeah, so so look, I, I, there, there will be there will always be storytellers. There will always be young filmmakers who will come along and will have the same sort of passion as Martin Scorsese. But whereas he was influenced uh, by 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 Minnelli and by by Cirque and by Hitchcock and by Ford and so on, these new directors will be interested, in, in, uh, influenced by Scorsese and, and Spielberg and Clint Eastwood and so on, I think, I hope. Another question over here. <coughs> hi, hi, David. Hi. So um, building on this topic about you know the future of cinema, being a student of cinema, I'm stuck in this time where there's just remakes, reboots, sequels, prequels, you know, all of that. And um, what I was going to ask is this whole, uh, as you said, after the 70s, you know, these these directors, you know, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, came together to make, you know, these fantastic movies. Do you think there will ever be an age or there's going to be a new age for those type of filmmakers? Like, will there be... Um, an age of a group of directors to come out and what do you think is the future of cinema in this technological age and all the internet? Well, again, it's a hard question to answer, but I mean, as far as technology is concerned, I, I would never be um, nervous about, about that. I think technology, I mean, it is now easier to make a film than it's ever been before. The problem is getting it shown, getting people to see it. 
I mean, I, I saw a terrific, I thought it was really terrific, a, a, a film made here in Melbourne uh, not so long ago called Porno. Did anybody see Porno? P-A-W-N-O, not P-O-R-N-O. Um, it was made for about sixpence um, uh, in Footscray. And it's really, really, really good. And, and so, you know, I, I hosted a and a with the director and, the, and the, the writer who's the leading actor and some of the actors in, in Sydney. Um, because I because I liked it so much, so uh, the problem is the the problem is not making these films. The problem is is getting people to see them. The other thing I'd say to you is that you have a great advantage today as a as a young film enthusiast that I certainly didn't have, and Martin Scorsese didn't have. I, I'm actually older than he is, um, although we're sort of almost contemporary. But I'm about three or four years older than he. Um, so. Uh, we, when a film opened in the cinema and it had its run, that was it. It was gone. So unless it got revived in a, in a revival house somewhere, which you only got in the big cities, and I didn't live in a big city when I was young, um, you had one chance to see the film. And if your parents took you on summer vacation uh, during that week that that particular film was on, that was it. You missed it. And they wouldn't, I don't know why, but they wouldn't let me stay at home and watch the movie then. <laughs> um, so to now, today, you've got dozens of different ways of uh, seeing films. And I hope you do. Because I think if Martin Scorsese were here, he would say to you that there is such a wealth of cinema of the past, not just of the last five years, the last 10 years, but the last 100 years. Um, so be adventurous in, in looking for the films you, 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 you want to find. Go back to the silent era. Look at, look at some of the great films made in the late 1920s. Um, look at some of the great films made in, in the 40s. I mean, the, the, it's so rich, the history of cinema. And don't confine yourself to American cinema or, or British cinema, but, but seek out Japanese cinema. Seek out, seek out um, Italian cinema. Seek out, if you can find it, um, seek out... Swedish cinema, not just Bergman, but the others. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole wonderful world. I actually watch a, a new movie every day. E every day of my life, I see a movie that I've never seen before. That's my pledge to myself. And half the time, they're not very good. I, I, yesterday, for, <laughs> yesterday, for example, I finally tracked down a copy of Betty Davis's first film, made in 1931, called The Bad Sister. It's a terrible film, uh, but she's really good in it, and so is Humphrey Bogart, who's also in it. So, but it's, it's interesting, and, 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 I, and I get inspiration from seeing these things. So, so that's how I do it. But you ask about a group of filmmakers. Look, in, in Melbourne, in the 70s, um, just as all this was going on in, in America, there were, uh, there were filmmakers in Melbourne who were formed a sort of loose kind of filmmakers co-op I think around Carlton, um, and in Sydney, certainly people like Phil Noyce and George Miller uh, were were friends and colleagues. I mean, uh, and emerged that way. So, why shouldn't it happen again? Um, I might just mention too, actually, while you're mm -hmm. inspiring everyone to go and engage deeply yes. uh, with cinema, we are going to screen My Voyage to Italy, and I can't remember the exact date for it, but we're doing it on a Saturday. On a Saturday afternoon, have, have a look in the, on the website. But I found that just the most wonderful documentary is a kind of exploration of that post-World War II Italian cinema. It's just fascinating. And you come out, take a paper, um, pencil and paper because you're just writing down titles the whole time of what you want to see from it. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, the only problem with it is <laughs> it's wonderful. But if you ever want to see those films, he shows you the endings of all of them. <laughs> Now, why would you do that? <laughs> I don't know, but anyway. So beware. If you've, if you've never seen Bicycle Thieves, don't go and see Martin Scorsese's film because he shows you the ending. Okay, well, uh, look, I think we should wrap this up. Um, David, thank you so much. It's so wonderful to have you here uh, again in Melbourne and, uh, and spreading the, the Scorsese love. Um, you're such a wonderful speaker and it's uh, so many fantastic insights that are, you know, obviously... Um, 
you know, academic insights, but also the personal insights that you bring make it so special. So thank you, and please join me in thanking David Scott. Thank you. you have been listening to an AFME podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the ACME website. <laughs>